So the 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 parsha starts off where Moshe describes a interaction between him and Hashem, where he pleaded with Hashem to let him enter Eretz Yisrael. And Ba'isahi is referring to the time when he was told that he was not allowed to enter Eretz Yisrael. So Rashi explains that this was when, so after he had conquered the land of Sichon and, and Og, right, Moshe thought that, that, that perhaps, you know, since the Jews were going to settle that land, so therefore maybe the fact that Moshe was able to conquer it and able to kind of, you know, settle it implied that he would be allowed to continue and conquer and enter the rest of Eretz Yisrael. So therefore, he thought that at that point he had an opening to continue to, to start asking Hashem to let him enter Eretz Yisrael. The language of, um, uh, um, of Vaz Hanan is a language of prayer, and it's the language where people are asking for something that they know they don't deserve. It's the language of Chinam, of Matnas Chinam. And... Um, the the uh, the the Gary Rabbi explains says, says a fascinating thing. He says, he says, in fact, this is the highest level of prayer. The highest level of prayer is one where you're able to approach God, knowing that you have no right to get the thing, but still confident enough in the power of prayer and in kind of of what's happening to ask for it. And he says, where does this come from? Where does this confidence come from? So he explains, at the highest level of prayer, the highest kind of idea of prayer is where you kind of entrust, you trust God to decide what is good for you, and you ask God to give what is good for you. Now, from a theological perspective, it sounds very bizarre, right? The first question is, is that why would, right, why, why would, um, why would this be the highest level of prayer, right? Why would the highest level of prayer be asking for something, right? Intuitively, the highest level of prayer should be where you praise God or where you kind of just announce that God is good and God will do everything. The second, if the Gary Rabbah is, is, right, is, is under the impression that the, yeah? That if the Gary Rabbah is, is under the impression that the highest level of prayer, right, is where you are asking God to do what's in your best interest, so then why not just allow God to do what's in your best interest? Unless we suspect that without prayer, God will not do what's in our best interest, right? Which, again, sounds counterintuitive, right, from a theological perspective, that God will not choose to do what's in our best interest. So this really goes, I think, also to the deeper question, right, of, of what does it mean to pray for something? Right. If we are to believe in God as perfect and God as you know wanting what's best for us, then how could we ask for things? If it was the right thing for us, we would have it. If it was not the right thing for us, we wouldn't have it. So what's this notion of kind of trying to change divine will or trying to inform God of what He could do better? Right. So there are two basic approaches. Right. There's the approach of the Rambam, which, in my opinion, I think is extremely misunderstood and uh, like dangerously so. And then there is the opinion of the Ramban, which some people call the slightly more 
Kabbalistic approach, and there are different shades by the Sefer Ikrim and other people who kind of talk about it in different ways. There's one approach of the Ramban. Now, the way it's misunderstood, and which you may have possibly even heard, is that prayer has nothing to do with God. Prayer is about improving yourself, right? It's when you pray and you meditate, you kind of, kind of, it kind of, and you understand, helps you recognize how everything comes from God, and it elevates you, and then by elevating you, it's all about your improvement, and of course, it doesn't change what God will do one way or another. Now, if this was exactly what the Rambam meant, then the entire liturgy would sound insane, according to the Rambam, right? Please give us this, return us this. I mean, we, our entire prayer is structured in the language of as if we're talking to someone, right? Which according to this kind of very interesting understanding of the, of the Rambam in Maranavuchim, we're not doing. If you look at the Rambam carefully and you kind of examine the Rambam, the Rambam is actually saying a very deep philosophical concept that has to do with the Rambam's understanding of prophecy. The way the Rambam, and there's a lot of Greek elements mixed into this, which is, you know, one of those times when you're not really sure where the Rambam ends and Aristotle begins, not to say anything uh, heretical, but, but, you know, I don't think it's a bad thing to say, but the Rambam was definitely extremely kind of working within at least the paradigm of a certain Greek idea of kind of this notion of the great intellect, right? That there was this kind of a great philosophy. There's this idea that there's this sphere of intellect which surrounds the world and you could achieve immortality by kind of connecting to it and then you kind of become part of this greater intellect. And if you look at the Rambam and how he understands the world to come and how he understands a lot of things, you know, he may be borrowing terminology or borrowing concepts, but he's definitely working with this type of, at least, paradigm. So, for the Rambam, what prophecy is, is not so much a revelation, but a connection. It's the idea that you have the ability through righteousness and through, there's, uh, that's why he also understands why prophets, it says, have to have joy, right, which is a very interesting question, which people ask actually about Tisha B'Av, that how was Yermia able to uh, compose Eicha, which is a prophecy, if he was obviously not joyful when he did it. So it's actually an interesting discussion. But prophecy requires joy because, again, joy enables us to be able to kind of move past ourselves. And according to the Rambam, the idea of prophecy is that there's some, in some sense, you're able to kind of connect or meld your consciousness with God's consciousness. And therefore, you're able to kind of get glimpses of things outside yourself. Now, God you know, directs these thoughts to you or whatever, and different prophets have different levels of connection, and therefore they're able to kind of interact with that in a different way. But the kind of the cornerstone is that there's kind of melding of minds to some extent, right? It sounds like I'm saying something that, you know, sounds like it should make sense, but doesn't really make sense. I know I, it's a concept that's way above me, but if you look at the Rambam, that's how he seems to say it. I don't know exactly what he means, but that at least is what, is what he's saying. When it comes to prayer, it seems that there is a similar effect happening. When the Rambam says it's about us, it's the idea that we're able to kind of connect to Hashem, and in that state, we have a certain potency in being able to kind of direct or, or, or kind of 
affect God will, God's will, because we are kind of part of that consciousness at that point. And therefore, kind of, you know, our needs, at least in some way, are then given potency. Now, it may not be for our best interest, right? There are situations where we can ask for things in prayer and they can backfire, right? Hashem will give you things that are not necessarily good for you. And therefore, it requires a certain ability to be able to, you know, understand or at least trust in Hashem to kind of ask for things that in a way that that they are good for you. And that requires a lot of wisdom and that's kind of why we are very interested in the kind of canonical prayer because we assume that the rabbis who kind of have deep insights into these things and use their language in their proper way, they kind of have it figured out. And therefore, that's why there's such a stress on kind of using the standardized canonical prayer. Um, how the Rambam deals with the question of if it's not good for me, you know, if God, if God wanted to give it to me, why don't I have it, is not really clear from this approach, but it seems like it has something to do with the fact that, you know, when you, you know, you have, there is, the Rambam allows for the notion of kind of advocating, advocating for, for, for your interest. You need what? Oh, but I can't, I can't help you make right now, honey bunny. I'm teaching right now. You can go ask mommy, okay? Sorry, so, sorry. Someone needed help with a, with a bathroom break, but I'll have to help her. Uh, someone else will have to help her. Okay. Um, so, uh, the dangers of Zoom at home, right? Um, okay, so, I know. No, you can go. You can go ask someone else. Okay, you want to stay here? Okay, but just, okay. Um, so that's so, so that's one approach. The other approach is the approach of the Ramban, and it's the approach of others who say that what is what is um, prayer. He says an interesting thing that there's a difference between you know uh, potentiality, uh, potentiality and actuality, and therefore God created in this world that there are that same way kind of in in uh, all of creation, right? There is the role of man and the role of God, right? God gives us wheat. It's our job to uh, make bread, right? So, so too in our needs and in kind of how we live, there is a role of prayer where certain things exist in potential and it's our job to kind of um, uh, actualize them and that's what happens with prayer. That is the idea of the Ramban and, and then others say kind of things in a similar flavor. What is the notion of a matnaschinam? The notion of a matnaschinam, right, is where a person is able to, whether you go with the Rambam or the Ramban's approach, it's where a person is at the point when they understand that they have, God has no reason to give them this. They don't deserve anything. And in reality, I'm sorry, right, and in reality, and in, and in uh, reality, this is really a state of most of our requests, right? Even though we don't really know it, we kind of assume that everything that we have now is our right, and what we want more, we're asking for, right? We don't really sit down and think about why are we assuming this status quo as a given. But, you know, getting to the point of matnas chinam is a very, very high level. And the reason is, is because this is really kind of one of the sources, it's, it's, it's a... It's a way of appreciating Hashem's role in creation. It says, right, Olam Chesed Yibaneh, that God created a world of Chesed. And the Vilna Gaon writes that the purpose of the world, kind of from our perspective, was for, was for Chesed, for God uh, to do Chesed. 
they explain that what does it mean chesed? Chesed doesn't, you know, we kind of think of chesed as kind of giving somebody, you know, something to eat or whatever. But the notion of chesed is, is where good is being done for someone that's not within their right, right? And therefore, if we believe that the creation of the world was for the good of humanity, it's a recognition of the fact that our existence is chesed. Our existence here is done with chesed. And therefore, since the core and the essence of our entire existence is chesed, and Hashem kind of put us here as chesed, then a matnas chinam, asking God for something for free, is a recognition of the true state of creation. That we are here for our own good, we are here because it's good for us to be here, and we had no right to be here in the first place. And therefore, part of that paradigm is also asking God for things that we need that will enable us to be able to accomplish what we're supposed to accomplish here. This is all part of God's original chesed. If God put us here for our own benefit, therefore God must put us here for some purpose, for us to accomplish something beneficial. Therefore, we need to ask, it makes sense, obviously, that we would logically be entitled to ask God for those things that we need, not that we deserve. We need certain things to be able to accomplish them. Therefore, Moshe approaches Hashem in this highest level of, of, of chesed, and he says, Hashem, you asked me to lead the Jewish people. There was no bigger transition than for them to go into Eretz Yisrael. This is part of my mission. This is why I'm here. I understand that I don't deserve it. But nothing about my life was about what I deserved. It was what I was needed for. And am I not needed for this? And Hashem tells him, the Medrash says, to stop davening. Because Hashem tells him that, no, you're not needed for this. And in fact, the Medrash writes a terrifying thing that had Moshe entered Eretz Yisrael, it would have meant the destruction of the entire Jewish people. The reason is because had Moshe entered Eretz Yisrael and had he built a temple, it would have been impossible for God to be able to destroy this temple. Therefore, the wrath or the consequences of the Jews' actions would have to be taken out on the Jews themselves, and they would have been uh, destroyed. Since the temple was not built by him, it had lesser um, holiness and purity than the Jewish people, then God was able to burn the temple and uh, spare the Jewish people. So it's interesting, right? Moshe is asking for something, and Hashem has to tell him to stop, because this was, this was not where, where he was needed. Okay. Moshe is asking for something. He's not asking it for on behalf of himself because he wants to you know have have a good time in Eretz Israel he he wants to serve the Jewish people and that's in a sense then isn't I think the sense that that we all pray we're not praying for a larger bank account individually mm -hmm. we're praying for um you know for for us collectively as the Jewish people, we're, we're praying for, you know, uh, leaders and understanding and, and, and justice and, and mm. so forth. Right. But it's not an individual prayer in the sense of, I want to be that person. Right. At least I don't see that anywhere in the prayer. So. And, 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 and also, by the way, it, it does also reflect a certain attitude that we have to have when we pray for our individual needs, right? There are certain places when you're allowed to insert individual prayers, but they can't be about yourself. They have to be about, you know, what 
what I need in order to serve God or what I need in order to be, you know, to kind of take care of my kids or what I need in order to do certain things. It can't just be like, God, I need a break in the Bahamas right now for no other reason than I want to look at the blue water, right? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Okay, so then after, so after Moshe, after Moshe finishes talking to the, to, to the Jewish people, he then kind of talks to them about the fact that they will sin. And this is a, a very interesting, I just, want to, we'll, 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 I just want to get there, we actually lamed it today. Um, it is uh, uh, Parak, Parak Dala, chapter 4, verse 25, right? Where Moshe, Moshe basically, and this is interesting because we see this throughout Devarim, the inevitability of sin, pretty much, right? That we're basically told that sin will happen, and that there will be all sorts of problems that come from it. And then we are told about the path of return. And it seems to be a very, you know, recurring theme. And I don't want to kind of get into that now. I want to save it for a later Parsha where it's much more salient. But if you look over here, right, you have begot children and children's children and you are long established in the land. And then, right, should you, and you will kind of destroy and you will make a, a uh, wicked image and you will do evil in the eyes of God to make him angry. So I heard a, a interesting explanation over here that it's not saying that this will necessarily happen. It's saying why these types of things happen. And you are long established in the land. While the Jews appreciate the gift and the value of what Eretz Yisrael is, they understand that they have to live on a higher level and these things are not going to happen. It's when they begin to take Israel for granted that this is, yeah, it's their place, it's their homeland, whatever. It's, right, it's a land like every other land, and why should they not be able to do all the interesting things that people do everywhere else and live with the same standards that everyone lives everywhere else? That is when they will fall into the pit that will lead to Pesel to Munaskal. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a certain... It's once they become jaded and once they kind of forget the appreciation, they forget the value of what Eretz Yisrael is, that's when they're going to end up in this type of a situation. I thought it was an interesting idea. Okay, so then Moshe tells them a, a kind of very interesting thing. He says, right, if you look at the next verse, how do I call the heaven and the earth this day to kind of testify. That once you fall into idol worship, you will be quickly destroyed from the land. You won't be there for a long time. Right? This is, I'm saying, after you started this behavior. You will be wiped out. Then it says, what happens after the exile? So after, after this destruction, then the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few shall be left among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. Now, I heard a fascinating statistic from a historian. I don't know where this comes from. I'm not sure where he got it from, uh, but, but you know, he's a reasonably accepted historian. So he said, his name is Dr. Abramson from Toro, that... At the time of the destruction of the Second Temple, there were 15 million Jews in the Roman Empire. Kind of in the whole of the Roman Empire, there were approximately 15 million Jews. And the number sounded very large to me. I, I know. I, but it's not the first place I, I, I actually heard it. 
And he said that if you look five, six hundred years later, or without, you know, everybody going into Europe, that by the eighth, ninth century in Europe, there were, I think, or maybe even by the tenth, by the, by the by year 1,000, there were, I think, less than 600,000 Jews in Europe and 800,000 Jews in the Muslim lands, right? So, you know, a complete, you know, the Jews were just wiped out. So he says that, in fact, what got rid of the 95, the vast majority of the Jews was not death or destruction. It was the fact that once the temple was destroyed, they lost their Jewish identity and they just kind of disappeared, assimilated. They, they, Do we know there was 15 million? So I, I don't know where he got it from. I, I, I don't know. I, I, you know, this was, I tried to independently verify it. I never really got around to looking, but it wasn't the first time that I heard this number. I heard this number of 15 million in the Roman Empire from other places. It seems like a lot to me, right? I mean, like, there weren't that many people on earth at the time. But, but you know, I, I, he, he's, but I, he, I did hear this number. I did also hear a rumor that there were also some mass conversions to Judaism at some point in the Roman Empire. There was, there's a rumor that Nero's wife was even Jewish, which is not a rumor that we want to spread around too much because she was notoriously anti-Christian. Um, so, uh, you know, there, there is, there is, I, so I don't know exactly where he got it from, but th this is, not, this is, it wasn't the first I heard about it, but I don't have independent, independent verification. Um, okay. So, so, but, but, you know, the, the idea was, was that the, the, the temple is what kind of held their Judaism together. And once it was gone, people just lost all connection. And, you know, we kind of think of rabbinical Judaism as being, you know, kind of, you know, a movement or whatever, but we don't realize how much we have to thank for it to ex existing as really what enabled Judaism to exist without a land, without a temple, in, in, a, in, a, in a diaspora. What I found fascinating was that I heard the story last night on H.com. Again, the lady said it, I, I can't verify it, but she was she said that she was working in the absorption, uh, in the, uh, absorption centers when the first Jews from Ethiopia came to Israel and they it was Tishabov. And she was talking to them and she mentioned that tomorrow, whatever it is, she can't eat because it's Tishabov and they're mourning the, the the destruction of the temple. She told the kids. The kids came home, the kids were like looking looked at her in shock, and she had no idea why. Then the next day she was met by a crowd of angry parents. And they said to her, like, what are you telling our kids? The temple wasn't destroyed. It's in Yerushalayim. It's built. Like, wh why are you spreading lies to our kids? And she explained to them. She showed them pictures. And before she knew it, they had all dissolved in hysterical tears. That it seems that they were so cut off from kind of, they, you know, when they left, they left, I think, after the first place, maybe sometime during the second, you know, some period, and they were cut off, which I was shocked about, honestly. But it's, she says that they were cut off completely, and they had no idea that the base of Magdash was destroyed. And therefore, for 2,000 years, they actually held on to this, that there is a base of Magdash in Jerusalem, and it's there, and... She said that it like you know, you know. We asked the question, how could we, you know, think about the destruction that happened two thousand years ago today? Like, what would she said? Like at that moment, she saw like, what does it mean to mourn the temple? Yeah, I I, I thought that's fascinating. I, I I was I was very surprised to hear that this that like the people didn't know, but but this was I thought a fascinating thing. 
Jesus. But either way, so so um, so the temple is the, so the 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 Eretz is an important part. So then Hashem says the Jews they'll be uh, spread out, and only a few of them will kind of survive or will still identify as Jews. And you will serve idols if you look at verse twenty-eight and kind of you know the the progress. But then he says. So uh, Sapphira, I don't know where Sapphira gets their translations from if you're using them, because I don't like how they translate. They're not, they're not, they're not, they're not translating literally. If you look, if you look at, they say, but if you search for God, it doesn't say that. It says, misham es Hashem, and you will search for God. Where are you? So I'm in verse 29. How does how does he translate it over there in Hertz? And from there, you will seek Hashem, your God, and you will find him. Right. If you search for him. So you, will, so, you, so you will find him, right? What, if you search for him, it says? If you search for him with all your heart and all your soul. Oh, okay, fine. So I'm wrong. So then, so then they are, you know, they're putting the if at the beginning for some reason. But, right, if you search, so if you search for Hashem, you will find him as long as you look, right, uh, with all your heart and soul, right? And then, right, it says... Right when you are in distress, the kind of one of the biggest motivators to have people uh, return to God is when there are bad times, right? But if you if you if you if you um, if you look at the sequence of the psukim, it says what is the biggest kind of thought process that we're going to have that's going to bring us back, right? For the Lord, uh, for right, for the Lord. So, if you look at verse thirty-one, is a compassion of God; He will not fail you, nor, right, nor will He let you perish. He will not forget the covenant you have, but to acquire about the bygone eras, right? Kishalna, and then Moshe goes through from here on the whole history of the founding of the Jewish people. What is the most important lesson that we have to learn from Jewish history that Moshe is teaching us in order for us to be able to come back to Hashem? is to recognize that Hashem loves us. And this is seemingly kind of a redundant theme that we talked about in Devarim, but over here, Moshe really says it very, very explicitly, right? Right? Has, has any God ventured to go take for himself one nation from the midst of others, right? And he, right, right, all the miracles, Hashem, right? And if you look at verse 37, because Hashem loved your fathers, he chose, he chose their heirs after them, right? That everything is here, the entire process, look, Hashem has invested so much in you. Hashem cares for you so much. Of course, he wants you to come back. And this is, in a way, it kind of talks to a very, very famous theological issue that many Christians accuse the Jews. They say, haven't you Jews gotten the message at this point that God has rejected you? He destroyed your temple. More recently, they point to the Holocaust. They talk about all of Jewish suffering and Jewish history, right, as proof, as evidence, right, that God does not want to have anything to do with the Jewish people anymore. They are damned, right? And what he wants is a whole new approach. But one of the most powerful arguments against them is that this entire idea is already preempted in the Old Testament. And we'll see throughout Dvarim that Hashem says, you will sin, I will drive you through the nations, you will suffer, you will be rejected, all these terrible things will happen, but I want you back. 
because I love you, because I care for you. Who do I want back? This nation that I chose, guy make care of guy, specifically you, the Jewish people. There is no other way to interpret it. And I remember I had a very kind of interesting moment. I was flying to the, the, the first time I ever flew to Russia. I, oh, I was trying to say that. First time I ever flew to Russia, not from Russia, was when I was 17 years old. I went to be a counselor in a summer camp there. And I was on the plane, and next to me was this old kind of, you know, Jew from Lakewood who was going back to Russia, you know, I forgot, I wasn't sure why, he had some, some kind of, he was working for some kind of organization, but he had been going to Russia for decades, I mean, he was still going back in the 80s, so he spoke Russian, Russian very well. Behind us were two priests, I think they were kind of Greek Orthodox, or Russian Orthodox, right, with the whole, you know, Levush, as we say. And so, I was peacefully, you know, trying to mind my own business and make sure he didn't see me looking at the in-flight entertainment. But what I, what, what I, you know, realized, so then behind me, all of a sudden I hear in Russian, this conversation start between him and the priest. He was sitting in the aisle across from me and they were behind me and this conversation started about theology. They preempted it. They started up with the wrong guy um, because, you know, he had his Tanakh, it seems like he had experience in these things, but he say first they began talking about you know the 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 thing about the, the you know they were trying to say that it's very clear that God you know chose Jesus from the blessings of Bilam and he opened up his chumash and he read and translated in Russian and they read along with him and he basically showed them like it's a drash you know it's not a proof and uh, but that the fascinating conversation started about this they said to him they said. I don't understand. Look at the position of Jews in the world. They are, yes, we kind of, on one level, us anti-Semites accuse them of being in charge of everything, right? One of the great paradoxes of anti-Semites is that we also like to say that the Jews are nothing, right? But he said, look, the Jews, the Holocaust, this, I mean, like, can't you see that, like, God doesn't like you? Like, can't you understand it? So he said to them, he said, do you believe in the Old Testament? And they said, yeah, yeah, obviously. He said, okay, let's read some passages. And he began reading the prophecies in Dvarim and the prophecies in uh, Bechukosai. And he said, was this, the, going through every disaster, he says, was this the Holocaust? Was this the Holocaust? They said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Then he gets to the point where Hashem says, and after this, I want you to come back and you'll come back and I'll take you back. He said, and who is this talking about? And these guys were like, Every, everything else, they were like twisting and arguing. They just stopped. They closed their books and they said, okay, this conversation is no longer interesting for us. And then he, 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 he turned to me and he said, I wasn't doing this for their sake. I was doing it for your sake. You, it, was, it was close to Tisha B'av. He said, you have to hear that this is one of the most important prophecies we have. That no matter how far we think we are, no matter how much we think Hashem has distanced, has distanced Himself from us, it is in the Torah that Hashem wants us back. And every single, you can point to any proof, it's described in Dvarim, and Hashem says, Afal Pikein, even so, I want you back. And that, I think, is a very interesting thing, especially if you're to hear about Motei Tishabav, right, as we finish up Tishabav. Interesting idea. They they were they were not happy with him. I remember, <laughs> but it was a for me it was a good experience. This was on LL, right? No, this was this, <laughs> Moscow. Uh, this was on uh, uh, what was it called? Uh, Aeroflot. Aeroflot. Aeroflot.
actually was Delta. Delta has a five o'clock flight on Mondays. I think they still do. I don't know if they have now, but going to Moscow, uh, they had it for years because I remember whenever I told anybody I was going to Moscow, he said, "On the five o'clock Delta flight from JFK." I say, "Yeah." <laughs> okay. So the other, the other interesting thing we have is we have in uh, Devarim is Shema, right? The first parsha of Shema. If you go to chapter six, verse four, right? Devarim of Devarim, yeah. Meaning our no, no, not not Devarim. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry. So chapter six, verse four. Yeah. So you look over there, right? We have we have the first parsha of Shema. Shema Yisrael Hashem Lokeinu Hashem Echad and Ve'ahavta. If you look at the context, right? So Paul, do you mind reading for us the first the first few verses? Now that your audio is working. Starting from uh, Shema. No, starting here. from the beginning of chapter six. So verse one. Okay, this is the commandment and the decrees and the ordinances that Hashem your God commanded to teach you to perform in the land to which you are crossing to possess it, so that you will fear Hashem your God to observe all his decrees and commandments that I command you, you, your child, and your grandchild, all the days of your life, so that your days will be lengthened. You shall hearken, O Israel, and beware to perform so that it will be good for you, and so that you will increase very much as Hashem, the God of your forefathers, spoke for you, a land flowing with milk and honey. Yeah, keep going for a minute. And then uh, here, Israel, Hashem is our God. Hashem is the one and only. You shall love Hashem your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your <laughs> resources. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and these matters that I command you today shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them thoroughly to your children, and you shall speak of them while you sit in your home, while you walk on the way, while you re- when you retire, and when you arise. Bind them as a sign upon your arm and let them be ornaments between your eyes and write them on the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Okay, let's pause over here, right? So there, there, there seems to be a very interesting flow, right? We all know the Pasuk of Shema, but if you look at the context, there's an interesting flow, right? He's starting to command the mitzvot and the chukim, right? Why do we have the mitzvot and the chukim? Right? So in order, right? So in order for, for these mitzvot to help us be able to appreciate Hashem and follow His commandments, right? And the Jews should listen to them, right? Then goes the pasuk of Shema, right? Which seems to be out of place because ve'ahavta. Then and v'hayu that all flows very nicely because that's again talking about right accepting the mitzvot with love and committing to do them. So all of this is really kind of a discussion about our attitude towards the mitzvot and how we should be adhering to them. Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad is not about mitzvot, right? It's about a testament to Hashem's role in the world, Hashem's oneness, Hashem's unity, right? Why, why, why is it, why is it, is it, is it, is it being stuck over here in middle? So Rashi over here says a very interesting thing. He says, how do we understand Shema Yisrael Hashem Elokeinu Hashem Echad? So he says, Shema Yisrael, listen Israel, right now at this point in history, Hashem Elokeinu. 
Hashem, right, and we've talked about this a few different times, right? The word Elokeinu represents how God is manifest in the physical world, right? And we talked about right, that, you know, why in the beginning with the Makos, we said to show that Hashem hu Elokeim, that God controls the physical world, right? But Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is only our God, right? People think about the God of the Jews, the God of the Old Testament, right? We all, in, in, right, in the world, the way Hashem is manifest, He is only perceived by people as being the God of the Jews. But eventually, right, there will come a time when it will be Hashem Echad. That Shema Yisrael encapsulates the Jewish perspective on the progression of history. That it starts with the Jews having their own project, and eventually through this will come Hashem Echad. So therefore, this is an extremely important introduction into what it means to love the mitzvahs. How am I supposed to do everything out of love? Right? How am I supposed to wholeheartedly commit to the mitzvahs? To recognize that the entire point of kind of creation and of what's happening is to take the to, to change the situation from Hashem Elokeinu to Hashem Echad. Is to make kind of God and the presence of God and the mission of God one from being a uniquely Jewish recognition, a Jewish idea to one that's universal. And the way that has to happen is through our wholehearted devotion to the mitzvahs. It is only through that that this project could possibly be accomplished. When people are able to see that the mitzvahs, that, people, that, there's, a, that, that there's a Jewish people who devote themselves and are committed to the mitzvahs and they're able to see what the mitzvahs are able to do in the world and also with the kind of godliness that the mitzvahs bring into the world, that will eventually lead to a Hashem Echad. That's Rashi's interpretation. There's another interpretation of Shema Yisrael Hashem Echad, which doesn't really answer this question of, um, of why it's there, but it is there to kind of talk about this tension that we have in Judaism between the kind of mul multiple nature of God and the singular nature of God, right? On one hand, we have this idea that there are many names of God. God manifests in many different ways in creation, right? There's Shalom, there's MS, Right, there's, there's Hashem, there's Elohim, there's all these different ways how God manifests in creation. And then there is the notion that everything is one. That in reality, these are, these are all one. And this is a very kind of, I think, important idea just in Judaism in general. Is that the project of Judaism in many ways is to make the many one. Is to kind of look at all these different, you know, we think about all the different mitzvahs. Right? But ultimately, the idea is, is to recognize that they have one role. They are one. Is that we are commanded in the mitzvahs, and it seems that there are, there are lots of them, and okay, I'll do some, I won't do others. But the, the important thing to understand is that no, they are elokeinu, they seem to kind of be many, but they're echad. Ultimately, our, 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 our job is to recognize that they're all one. And therefore, if you violate one of the mitzvahs, you know, if you refuse to accept one of the mitzvahs, then you have just de de destroyed the entire unity of the system. And therefore, jeopardizing the, the entire system. That's another approach I heard from, um, from the Maharal. Why is, um, yeah. in the, uh, this is a stone edition, but, um, in Shema, the Ayn is the big, 